0: I'd like to invite you at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and uh, we are on the topic of the Lord's Supper, as the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, And for today's sermon, I'd like to uh, consider verses 23 through 26, the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. But for context, I'll begin reading in verse 17. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active. And we confess that when your word is proclaimed, we hear the very words of the Lord speaking to us. And so we pray that, as your word is taught, that you would open our hearts to be able to embrace all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name, amen. Well, beloved Lord, in the Pixar movie, Inside Out, we are given an imaginative glimpse into the mind of a little girl. Where characters such as joy, sadness, Fear, anger, and disgust guide the character wildly through her life. And for those of you who have seen the movie, as, as you get this depiction of sort of the headquarters of her brain, you see that there's all of these, these glowing glass orbs around, which are her memories. And each and every one of those glowing balls represent a particular memory in her mind. But in the middle of the headquarters of her brain, are her what are called her core memories. And these core memories are formative events in her life that make her who she is. Well, if you haven't seen the movie, you should see it. It's a great movie. But more than just a heartfelt uh, Pixar film, the creators of this film are on to a very important truth, namely that our memories make us who we are. Experts call this our narrative identity. That is, we take the events of our past, the story of our life, and that forms our identity. It forms and makes sense of our present reality and also orientates us for the future as we go along life's journey. We see this being taught in Scripture. As Scripture retells us about our past, and to inform us of our present, and it also tells us of our future, of the story of God's redemption, of what we can look for. And so it's not just our identity, is not just formed by the particular events of our life, like where we were born, or where we might have gone to elementary school, or whatever uh, events that form your core memories, but it also involves the bigger story. The bigger story of our identity, whether it's our national identity, as we tell the story of our founding fathers, we do that to form an identity as Americans, or perhaps even our identity as human beings, where we came from, where we're going. All of these are stories that we tell ourselves to form this identity, this narrative identity, and they're based upon these memories. Well, in our passage today, we see our Lord Jesus Christ instituting the Lord's Supper in order for us to revisit one of those core memories. He tells us to partake of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. And so in our passage today, we're going to see how it is that we partake of the cup and and, and partake of the bread in remembrance of our Lord and how that forms our identity as new creatures in Him. Well, just for a bit of the context... Uh, You know, as I read the the whole section here, that the Apostle Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for their gross abuse of the Lord's Supper. He says it's so bad that it can't even be called the Lord's Supper anymore. You see, uh, as the early church would gather on the first day of every week for worship, they would also hold a meal, which they called the agape feast or the love feast, at which the feast they would partake the elements of bread and wine and have the Lord's Supper together. But as we see in the context here, some individuals within the church of Corinth didn't have any food to bring to the feast. This was likely because there was a famine going on during the time. And yet rather than sharing with those less fortunate, those who had food would wolf it down, devour it in front of the others, and humiliate those who had nothing. So that by the time it it came for them to partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, one was hungry and another was drunk. Such egregious and inconsiderate behavior during the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to symbolize our unity in Christ, was incurring guilt upon the Corinthians, and they were provoking the judgment of the Lord to come upon them. And so in the midst of all of this rebuke and somber warning, which is the wrong way for them to Go about partaking the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul in our passage today recounts the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper to show the right way. And so he starts off in verse 23 by saying, I received from the Lord. You see, the Apostle Paul calls the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper because it belongs to him, it's it's uniquely his, it's his own personal possession. And so the Lord's Supper isn't something that was created by man, it's not man made. It was instituted by the Lord himself. And like the very gospel message itself, the Apostle Paul received it directly from a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't just following the lead and example of the other apostles. This is something the Apostle Paul received directly from the Lord and then delivered it directly to the Corinthians. This is what we call tradition. This is what the Apostle Paul began by commending the Corinthians back in verse 2 of chapter 11, by committing them for observing, for the most part, the traditions he had passed on to them. And yet here they need to be reminded, yet again, of the proper way to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're told that it was the night in which our Lord was betrayed that he instituted this meal. That word translated betrayed literally means to hand over, and typically this is understood as Judas's betrayal. We all know the story of Judas betraying Jesus and and handing him over to the authorities for 20 pieces of silver. And so here and even in the midst of our Lord instituting this meal that commemorates his death and also uh, uh, is, is a means of grace for those who embrace it by faith. We're reminded of the emotional turmoil that our Lord was undergoing that very night. I think David captures in a prophetic sense, captures the emotions that our Lord must have been feeling in Psalm 55 when he says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide it from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Here, prophetically, David speaks of the, the emotions that our Lord was experiencing that night, how even one of his 12, one of his closest companions, was betraying him as he was plotting to hand him over to the authorities. And yet, as we keep in mind the fact that Judas was the human agent in Jesus being handed over to the authorities to be crucified, we know that God was in complete control. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's the same word translated here, betrayed. You see, it was God, it was Judas who was betrayed, but it was God who was giving up his son as a sacrifice. And even Jesus himself, as he speaks of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So getting back to the words of institution, we see that our Lord took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Here, Jesus is acting as a typical host in a Jewish meal, Uh, especially during the Passover meal. The host of the meal would take the bread, and he would break the bread, and then he would offer up a prayer of thanksgiving. And this prayer was known as a blessing because it began with the word blessing. Uh, it was Baruch Adonai alechenu and it would start off by saying, blessed are you, the Lord our God. And they would offer up the thanksgiving to the Lord for providing the food. And so Jesus is doing nothing out of the ordinary here as he takes the bread and he breaks it and offers up a prayer of thanksgiving. And by the way, to break bread is simply just to share the bread. We shouldn't import any symbolism into the breaking of bread as if that somehow depicted the death of our Lord. Nothing extraordinary is going on with Jesus taking the bread and offering up a prayer of thanksgiving. But where we get to the groundbreaking part is when he he gives significance to the bread in verse 24, when he says, this is my body. It's important to keep in mind that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did it in the context of the Passover feast. And you may recall that the Passover feast was a feast where the lamb was eaten signifying the Lord's redemption of his people from Egypt and the sparing of the life of their firstborn sons. You know the story in the original Passover, they sacrificed a lamb one year old and they would put the blood on the doorpost so that the the destroyer would pass over and would not kill the firstborn son. And so in a real sense, the Israelites, when they were feasting upon that lamb, they could look at their firstborn son and say, this lamb died for you. This lamb died so that you might live. And so Jesus, when he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is for you, we see Jesus infusing new significance into this meal. He says that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died in our place for us by taking the wrath of God, which we all deserve, and that he brought about an even greater exodus, not just from earthly servitude, but from sin and Satan and death itself, so that we might live unto him. That's why Paul said back in chapter five, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Or after breaking the bread and giving it to his disciples and infusing new significance into that bread, we read then in verse 25 that he took the cup. Now, again, this was a very common action for the host, especially during the Passover meal. By Jesus's day, there were actually four times throughout the meal where the host would take up a cup and would offer up a prayer of thanksgiving. And that cup was called the cup of blessing. It's interesting that Paul uses that very same term back in chapter 10 when he says the cup of blessing, which we bless. And so here Jesus takes up the cup of blessing and offers up a thanksgiving to the Lord for his provision. But then he once again infuses new significance to it. When he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, going back to that original Exodus story, we know that having redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, the Lord made a covenant with his people at the foot of Mount Sinai. And part of the ratification of that covenant, of the old covenant, involved this blood ritual that we read of in Exodus chapter 24. You see, Moses uh, built an altar and they began sacrificing uh, 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 animals on this altar. And as they would slit the throat of the animals and the blood would come out, Moses captured the blood in these basins. And he took half of the blood and scat- and, and threw it onto the altar. And then we read that he took, uh, in verse 7, that he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And all the people responded by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant of the Lord, he has made with you in accordance with all these words. So imagine if we did that in church today, it'd make you think twice about sitting in the first few rows. As as Moses takes this basin of blood and throws it on the people and says, Behold the blood of the covenant. Well, what's going on here? The people of Israel are swearing a solemn oath to the Lord to obey him. They said all that he has spoken. Think about the Ten Commandments. Think about what was said in chapter 19, that they needed to obey God. And they said, We're going to do it. We promise. And to seal that promise, they had blood thrown on them. The idea being that if they don't live up to that promise, then that blood will symbolize their own. And those of you who know the story of the Old Testament know that the Israelites, in fact, sealed that oath with their own blood. And that's why it's an Old Testament, because it did not accomplish the redemption of God's people. You see here, when Jesus takes up the cup of blessing, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus declares that he is the guarantor of a better covenant, more excellent than the old because it is enacted on better promises, as the author to the Hebrews tells us. See, it's not our blood. It's the blood of Christ that redeems us, that makes us God's people. It's his obedience, both active and passive obedience, which uh, uh, enables us to be members of this new covenant of grace. And so as he takes the bread and he takes the cup and he, and he shows how these things are uh, symbolizing what he will do, the work of redemption that he accomplishes, he says to take these things in remembrance of him. Christ commands that we eat of the bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of him. And yet maybe at this point we might wonder, well, what does it mean to do it in remembrance of him? Do we really need to be reminded that Christ died for us? How can we forget the most basic tenet of Christianity? How can we forget that Jesus died for our sins and rose again? Do we really need to be reminded of it? And especially for those of us, churches like us, who partake of the supper every week, do we really need a weekly reminder? Wouldn't it be more fitting maybe to do it once a month or perhaps annually? Maybe then it'd be helpful to be reminded of the fact that Jesus died for us. Well, here's where I think we need to understand the significance of remembering something in Scripture. In Scripture, when it talks about remembering something, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just like you forgot something and you need to recall that fact. Rather, remembering something is covenantal. It is infused with covenantal significance. And and I want to show you some examples of this. And so to remember something in a covenantal context is to call to the forefront of your mind both the benefits and obligations of the covenant and then to act on them. To call to the forefront of your mind both the benefits and the obligations of the covenant and then to act on them. So going back all the way to the book of Genesis, the first time anyone ever remembers something in all of scripture is actually God remembering Noah in the ark. You know the story in Genesis chapter 8, we read, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, if remembering in scripture is just recalling a fact that you had forgotten, it doesn't really make sense here, does it? Because God doesn't forget things. He knows everything in an eternal moment. So clearly God isn't thinking, oh yeah, I forgot about Noah and his family and all the animals. I better make that wind blow so that they can arrive safely on land. No, the idea here is that God had already made a covenant with Noah back in chapter 6. And this covenant involved the salvation of him and his family and all the animals. And so for God to remember that covenant in chapter 8, means, as it were, for him to call to the forefront of his mind the benefits and the obligations of the covenant and then to act on it. And that's why he makes the wind blow. We see the same thing in Genesis chapter 9. Once Noah gets out of the ark, God makes another covenant, not just with Noah and his family, but with all of creation that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And as a sign of that covenant, what does he give? Well, he gives the rainbow. And the Lord says, when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. See, again, as the Lord says, he he will see that sign of the rainbow and he will remember. That is, he will call to the forefront of his mind, his obligations, and then he'll act on it. A human example of remembering, or or perhaps not remembering, is seen at the end of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. Joseph was uh, locked up in the dungeon, and he he interpreted the the dream of Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. And when he interpreted that dream, and he said, you are going to be restored to your former position, and you're going to be brought back to the king's palace, he says, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so, me, so get me out of this house. Joseph isn't, isn't just saying, hey, keep me in mind. He says, no, act on it. Remember me and get me out of this prison. And yet we know the story that, that the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so here is not just a mental lapse, but a moral lapse on the part of the cupbearer. He did not act on his obligation, what he owed to Joseph for the favor that he did to him. And we can go forward uh, recalling the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, when the Israelites cry out to God, God hears their groanings and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to redeem his people out of Egypt. And then finally, on the part of God's people, we're told in the fourth commandment that the Israelites are to remember the Sabbath day To keep it holy. Again, the idea isn't just, oh yeah, I forgot, it's Saturday, I can't work. No, the idea is remember, that is, call to the forefront of your mind all that God has done for you. Not just that He created everything in six days and then rested, but also that He redeemed you out of Egypt. Remember those things and then act on them. The Sabbath itself was a sign to Israel that the Lord their God sanctified them and made them holy. That's what it means to remember in a covenantal context. And we see that even in the Passover feast. By Jesus' day, the rabbis would teach uh, this, this saying, in every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. You see, as the faithful Israelites would partake of the Passover feast, it wasn't just a meal that reminded them of their past, but it was also an opportunity for them to identify themselves with that original Exodus generation. Not that the Exodus was repeated time and time again, but its implications echoed throughout the ages. And in eating the Passover meal, in remembrance of the past, the faithful, each generation of faithful Israelites identified themselves with God's people and together with them anticipated their final deliverance, thus linking the past to the present, to the future. See how covenantal memories work? That's what happened in the Passover. And that's what happens in the Lord's Supper. As Paul tells us in verse 26, that as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You see, when you do something, like eat or drink, you say something. You make a proclamation. You are heralding Jesus uh, you're heralding, Paul says, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You're hearing a sermon right now with your ears, but very soon you're going to preach your own sermon by eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper. And the the main point of that sermon is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the message of the cross. We've already seen the significance of the message of the cross. As Paul spoke about it back in chapter 1. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He goes on to say, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord you see as we partake of the of the lord's supper in remembrance of the lord we are making a proclamation and that proclamation is of the lord's de- it, 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 we're proclaiming the lord's death to ourselves in a very tangible way we are reminded of the fact that we are saved not by our own strength or wisdom or might but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so as we call to the forefront of of our mind, the benefits of the new covenant of grace, we're also reminded of the fact that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. As we saw in Galatians chapter 5, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Whereas Paul will go on in Second Corinthians to say that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so now we begin to see how remembering Christ's death has profound implications for how we live our lives namely not for ourselves, but for others and for the Lord. This is how we live our lives as new covenant people. This is what it means to remember the death of Christ, to remember not just that Christ died for me, but that I died with Christ. Which, by the way, if calling back into the context the the abuse of the Lord's Supper how it was that those who had food in Corinth weren't sharing with others and were bringing shame and humiliation upon them, we see how, how utterly perverse their actions were in light of what the supper is supposed to mean and signify. But we see here in identifying ourselves with the message of the cross, perhaps we could paraphrase that, that saying of the, of the Jewish rabbis, updating it for the new covenant. In every generation, a Christian must so regard his or herself as if they were crucified with Christ and raised with him. You see, we find our new and true identity in the story of God's redemption in Christ. Not just our own personal narratives, but the grand narrative of God's redemption in Christ. We have been crucified with him. That's how we mold our identity for the present. But we also know the end of the story. We know the end of the story because when we make this proclamation, we not only look back to the Lord's death, but we also look forward to his return. That's why Paul says in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not only do we look to the past, To find significant for the present, but we also look to the future when the Lord will complete our redemption with the glorification of our bodies. And so, if you're here today and maybe you're just a little bit displeased with yourself, you're having a hard time finding your identity, your significance in life, know this you are a work in progress. You are a new creature because you've been crucified with Christ and raised together with him. But the Lord by his spirit is working in your life and sanctifying you and making you more and more like Christ. But it's only when he comes again that we will be fully glorified together with him. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper today, let us, uh, with, with this in mind, let us do it in remembrance of him and form our new identities, and remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you for that greater redemption that you accomplished with your death. You indeed are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you have redeemed us from the curse of the law. It wasn't our own blood, but your precious blood that purchased us And you continue to uh, grant to us these new identities through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that we would always remember who we are in you. That even now as we partake of the supper, that we would be able to uh, uh, bring to the forefront of our mind all of the benefits and obligations of the covenant that you have enacted in your blood. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.